Welcome to the fourth season of Better News, a series of special podcasts It's All Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by the American Press Institute and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research the American Press Institute has published as part of its Better News initiative. 100 Days in Appalachia is an independent nonprofit newsroom that has been working with local voices to apply a cultural lens to national stories. Their reporting earned the 100 Days team a 2021 Edward R. Murrow Award. But here's an idea you might want to steal. 100 Days recently wrote a report for Better News on how the newsroom moved beyond philanthropic support to begin reader revenue and community membership. Dana Kester is the editor-in-chief for 100 Days in Appalachia, and Ashton Mara is the newsroom's executive editor. Dana and Ashton, welcome to the Better News Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, well, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourselves. Let's start with you, Dana. How did you get interested in journalism, and how did you end up at 100 Days? Well, I've been a journalist for more than 30 years. I grew up in the Ozarks in Missouri and went to the Missouri School of Journalism. I'm also a professor at at WVU and the College of Media, where a lot of what I do is focused on community media and media innovation. And 100 Days was part of a project that we launched here. How about you, Ashton? What got you interested in, in journalism? So I'm a, I'm a two-time graduate of West Virginia University, where 100 Days was incubated in our Media Innovation Center here. I worked you know, in public broadcasting, mostly, a little bit in commercial television in my 10 years kind of out in the field after I graduated from WVU. And you know, a couple years into the 100 Days project, got the opportunity to come back and be part of the university and, and part of this great thing that Dana started. So what led up to the creation of 100 Days? Well, it actually was sort of a, an abrupt uh, launch. Uh, 100 Days was conceived and launched the day after the 2016 election. Honestly, in about 15 minutes, we wrote a, a mission statement and, and decided to do it, in part due to frustration of the persistent misrepresentation of the region throughout you know, campaign and media cycles leading up to the presidential election. And part, it was something, you know, we'd been talking about launching a publication for years, and we just sort of had a clarifying moment and went for it. It was originally designed to be just a pop-up news project for 100 days, but obviously we kept going. And so what is, um, just give me a description of how 100 days functions. So we're a regional publication, but we're actually a national publication. Like it was really important to us. We were not trying to be a competitor for local audiences with other regional outlets. We wanted to be an amplifier that was sort of shouting out to the rest of the world about our region, making sure that regional voices were used as the cultural lens for people talking nationally and frankly, internationally about the region. So Obviously, we have a deep regional audience, but it was really important to us at that time to be, you know, making a statement about we are the national outlet to speak with authority on this region. So that was kind of what we were trying to do there. 
Okay. You're trying to change people's perception of the region, especially, you know, how it was portrayed. What type of stories, you know, did this sort of lead to? The very first story we published on sort of day one of our launch was a piece called Muslim in Appalachia, because the point was to say whatever you think you know about our region and whatever you know, stereotypes you're deploying or, you know, reducing, you know, the narratives here, you know, we want, we want to surprise you. So that was an example of sort of challenging people's perceptions and wanting to show how much more complex and diverse the region was. This project conceived in 15 minutes. I mean, at that point, what did you identify as your revenue source? How are you going to be paying for this? This. I would like to say we had a really, really good plan, and we didn't at that point. We were initially grant funded. You know, we had in-kind support from the university and our partners at that time, West Virginia Public Broadcasting and the Daily Yonder. And I'm embarrassed, but also will candidly admit to say we had zero revenue plan or sustainability plan, but obviously we came a long way since then. So Ashton, how did you get involved in 100 Days? Sure. So I wasn't involved in the project until kind of the summer of 2018. And I think that I came in at really kind of a transitional point in who we were as a publication and who we've become. You know, the name is really telling for us. 100 Days in Appalachia was literally supposed to only last for 100 days. And I think I came in on day like 375 or something, you know, like several hundred days later, this thing continued to exist and continued to be really important to the people who helped us get started and to the people who were reading our stories and seeing themselves reflected in the work that we were doing. So when I came in, it was really kind of at that point when we were making the transition from pop-up publication that was just trying to figure out on maybe a daily or a weekly basis what we were going to do and how we were going to keep going to, okay, now we kind of need to take a step back, think about what our mission, our long-term mission truly is, and start making those long-term plans for who we could become as a larger news organization. So was it about that point that you said, well, or not you, but all of you said, well, maybe we should figure out a different way to finance a thing? Or did that come later? Yeah, I think that was part of the conversation at the time. Dana, I think that's probably more appropriate for you to speak to in detail. But certainly when I came in, it was what are our long-term goals and how do we become sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was exactly when we started to sort of realize, wait a minute, this is obviously going to be more than a pop-up publication. If we are indeed going to be a successful incubated product at the Media Innovation Center, you know, what is our sustainability plan? What is our revenue generating plan? What is our transition plan? And, you know, Ashton sort of summarized, you know, perfectly that sort of revisiting the notion of, you know, who are we and who do we want to be? Okay. So I guess looking at the report that you did for the Better News Initiative, that you were involved in table stakes. How was that part of the decision process? How did that help you? Assuming that it helped you. I'll jump in, but Ashton was key in, in leading the table stakes process. I mean, for us, it was honestly really essential in part because it gave us a structured way to pursue that transition 
That was everything from helping us create the processes that we needed to create to transition, facilitating the kinds of team meeting, like regular focused team meetings that were really just not focused on content, but on audience and revenue generation and all the other operational aspects of running a newsroom, building methods for collecting data that we didn't have before that we had to sort of start doing in order to really think strategically about audience. I mean, in a way it was sort of a, we were a startup becoming a new startup. And and I think table stakes really helped us sort of clarify and focus on that process. Ashton, how are you involved in this? Yeah. So we had you know, four core members of our leadership team as part of that table stakes program as we went through. My role as executive editor seems to be kind of project management, keeping us organized, keeping us on task in the day-to-day anyways. So that's kind of the role that felt natural for me to fall into as we went through the table stakes process. The paperwork is my favorite part. This is very hands-on work. So tell me about, you know, how did you go about this transition from being, you know, philanthropically supported through grants and then, you know, identifying these other revenue streams that were going to sort of take you to the next place that 100 Days was going to be? I think I'll just say that the table stakes process was so integral for us because as a startup or, you know, this, I haven't worked for many startups. I haven't worked for any startups except for 100 days, but it felt like everything was important. And every time kind of a shiny object came at us, we were reaching for it and shifting focus and grabbing at things and not, not really sure where we needed to focus for the long term. And table stakes for us was kind of a reset. It was We have always been an organization very focused on mission and very focused on community, but table stakes for us was kind of the process that allowed us to see that that mission and that focus on mission could be turned into support and revenue generation in the long term. That actually the more we stepped back from things that weren't giving us results, the more we were able to focus our limited time and energy on things that were actually really important to the people that we were trying to serve. What were some of the the revenue streams that you were able to identify? Well, reader revenue. That is something that did not exist prior to us sort of, you know, making a transition, building sort of the infrastructure in order to even collect reader revenue and building campaigns around that. I mean, it just wasn't something we were able to do under the sort of university structure. So that first and foremost is sort of the most important source of revenue. I mean, we will probably never be completely free of seeking grants and philanthropic support, but making that transition to having monthly subscribers and micro donations from readers was a very big deal for us. How did you implement that? We participated in the Newsmatch campaign, which was a great sort of like leg up for us in entering that reader revenue space. We also work with a company called the Paywall Project, which helped us build the infrastructure in order to capture reader donations, micro reader donations, and also subscriptions as memberships. 
And I think that's it. That's the main sort of method as far as doing that. But also just beginning to communicate with our readers about why it was important, you know, why we existed, you know, what our relationship was with community and readers and making the ask, which was something we'd never done before. That relationship, starting that relationship and the consistent ask and closing on that messaging of support. It was the first time we had ever done anything like that, but it was also the first time that we built out the infrastructure to allow people to do that. And that's such a huge part of the process. It was for us at least. And we constantly found ourselves testing messages, testing the placement of donate buttons, testing the color of those buttons. You know, I think what table stakes ingrained in us through this process was testing, measuring the outcomes and being ready to shift when it wasn't working. And we did that really, really quickly through that kind of newsmatch process. It gave us that kind of first step into, all right, let's not just ask for money, but let's test and see what's really working and shift toward what our audience responds to. What type of things were, you know, audience members responding to? What type of things got no response? The things that did the best for us, the types of messages that do the best for us are things that are focused on community and things that are focused on what we provide at 100 Days that no other media outlet is providing. There is no other newsroom in Appalachia that's covering domestic extremism and white nationalism in the way that we are covering it. There is no other news outlet in Appalachia that is exclusively talking about the Appalachian experience, what it means to be from and of this place. Those things when people can really see themselves reflected in the stories And then we take the next step in the messaging to say, hey, you only get this kind of storytelling here. You only get this kind of reporting here. They seem to respond to those things really, really quickly. You know, Newsmatch is a fantastic program. It is so wonderful that they create all of these resources to help newsrooms who don't have a giant staff get a project like this off the ground. It's unbelievable. But when we used some of the generic messaging about journalism matters and just kind of left it at that and didn't make it personal, we we really didn't get any, we just didn't get any response from our audience for that. It was when we talked about how unique we are, how different we are, the things that we provide that nobody else is doing that people really recognized and responded. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you and I, we understand the need <laughs> inherently, the importance of journalism, but that's not something that the average person is, is going to get behind. It's not going to motivate them. They want to know how something is going to affect them personally. Is there anything about this whole process that has surprised you? I mean, I know something that surprised me was that we could do less and earn more, but it actually makes sense. We talk about this in the article and Ashton spoke to it. When we focused our efforts on things that we knew resonated with our audiences, we had more clarity about who we were, which in turn meant we had more opportunity to build on that relationship, you know, with our readers. But I would say that in the beginning, 
if you would have told me, you know, you're going to cut out doing, you know, 40% of the various projects and things you've got going on, and this is going to translate into growing revenue, I would not have thought that was possible. So let me ask each of you, what, you know, starting with you, Dana, what, what advice would you give to another newsroom or startup, new startup that's, you know, looking to find a different form of revenue beyond grants? Yeah. And in fact, I just offered this advice to some folks who are looking at doing something similar in a different region. My advice is understand what your minimum viable product is and start there. I think a lot of people go into a startup space thinking they need, you know, a brick and mortar building and they need to have, you know, 10 full-time staff members. And we are a very lean operation. We are a diffuse operation Stay small and simple and and grow in alliance with your mission. And also that growing a startup is a collaboration with the community you're serving. It's not a thing that you sort of bring everything to the table and say, here we are. It's a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. What I would also add is measure everything and listen to the numbers. Every time we tried any little thing as we were kind of making that transition toward sustainability and toward growing reader revenue, we measured everything. We set measurable goals for ourselves and when we didn't succeed, we stopped and moved on. The four of us who were kind of this core team during that leadership transition, or not leadership transition, excuse me, but during this kind of sustainability transition, none of us were emotionally attached to experiments or emotionally attached to ideas. We all know that we are coming from the same place in terms of our mission and our goals. That was just understood. We were all on the same page. And any experiment that somebody wanted to try, we'd set it up, we'd let it go for two months, three months. And if it wasn't working, we just stopped and tried something else. And I think a lot of larger organizations, and we definitely saw this in some of the other organizations that were participating in table stakes with us, there was kind of a I don't know if we're ready to shift yet. Maybe it will work if we give it longer. Let's throw more resources toward it, spend more of our time on it. And in the end, it just wasn't worth it. And we as a team were able to say, nope, didn't work. Time to move on. Let's try something else. And that speaks to how small we are. It speaks to the nimbleness of who we are, but also our focus on, okay, this is who we want to be. This is who we are. And we don't want to waste our time trying something that doesn't fit with who we are. I would say for another startup, even if you have a larger group of people, you have a larger infrastructure, whatever that is, if the numbers tell you it's not working, then move on. It's time to shift gears. It's time to try something else. One of our goals during the table stakes process was to establish ourselves as a leader in in the journalism space in Appalachia. And we kind of really struggled to figure out how we were going to measure that. Like, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be the go-to source for Appalachian news and information? And for us, one of the things we decided was, you know, we have some journalism adjacent projects that we are doing and we are going to continue to spend our time on and, and support with our resources. 
that help, we think, establish that footing. And one of them is our focus on Appalachian youth. We have a vertical where young people, and I mean high schoolers, young college students, we even had a middle schooler write for us about their experiences growing up Appalachian, what that means to them. But they've also done some reporting. We worked with student journalists to do some COVID reporting over the past two years. And we're the only platform for these young people. We are paying them to write. We are paying them to report and giving them a platform to publish their ideas and their thoughts. I steal this from our table stakes coach who called it, you know, said essentially we're collecting the voice of a generation. We are a place for them that nobody else is really listening. I mean, Appalachians don't get don't get a space in the national media. Appalachian youth most certainly are not going to. And so we feel very strongly about that investment in young people and giving them a platform to be heard and to share their ideas. That's really nice, identifying an underserved audience and then making them understand that, well, in order for us to continue doing that, we need to to figure out a way to support this. And that goes back to what we were talking about before about, you know, identifying the message that is really going to motivate people. And that seems like something that would be motivating. I've been talking to Dana Kester, the editor-in-chief for 100 Days in Appalachia, and Ashton Mara, the newsroom's executive editor, about how they transitioned from a philanthropic model to reader revenue and community membership. Dana and Ashton, thanks for being on Better News. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.